Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot. Hi, I'm Derek. And I'm Drew. And we are on Wonder Tour. You might be asking yourself what a Wonder Tour is. And it's really just looking through our favorite stories, the contexts, and connecting leadership concepts to those contexts because it sticks in our brain better. We believe that all of us are on a journey to become better leaders in our own lives. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. All right, well, let's hop into this. I am absolutely stoked to be talking to you today, Derek, about Interstellar. I love this movie. <clears throat> I know I say that a lot about a lot of movies, okay? But maybe I just love everything. I don't know. Um, but this I movie think that's a good is way to be. You got to have joy <laughs> in the present, and uh, that means to really enjoy what's in front of you and to take away from it what you can take away from it. I mean, even when I was seeing Spider-Man three in theaters, like I hope I found a little bit of joy in that movie somewhere. I can't remember it too too well, but I do remember that being like the worst movie I ever saw in theaters. And I hope I at least had some joy in, in the ridiculousness of it. But no, this is like a different beast. We're into a Christopher Nolan film. I think both of our favorite director and writer and Nolan just th- this is his masterpiece. Right. That's why we got to start with this one. This is top five movies of all time for me easily. Um, this it, it gets better with age the more times you watch it. Yeah, like most Christopher Nolan movies, um, well, I guess with the exception of Batman, um, it, it breaks my brain. And that's what I like about it. Um, there's so many movies that really don't. <laughs> but this one, man, it just just gets me spinning. And spinning is kind of a theme throughout. And we'll talk about that. We'll hit back on that later. Um, so are we ready to go into this story now? Yeah, let's talk about the story. And and. I mean, if you've been listening for the last couple episodes, you probably realize that we kind of go a little off chronological order when we do this. We just get excited. That's just the way it's going to be. So we're just going to hop into this. And if we miss specific elements that hopefully you recognize that those exist and you remember them when we bring them up later in the show, I think that we um, we just like to have fun with these intros. So let's talk about Interstellar. Uh, Derek. I'll kick us off here. So this movie opens up and I think it is important to say to talk about the opening scene that we want to time to talk about every scene. And in the opening scene, you see this uh, old lady talking about the earth and how it used to be. And you're not let on who this character is at this point, but it's, it's really tastefully done. Nolan loves to play around with the timeline uh, and, and how he shows that. And then you kind of immediately cut into this world uh, actually, I guess you do. It is important to note that you see Cooper waking up, Cooper being Matthew McConaughey's character. His name's Joseph Cooper. But from here on out, we'll just call him Cooper because that's what they refer him to um, in the movie. But he wakes up from this nightmare where he's crashing this spaceship. So this is going to be very important. It comes back up later in the movie multiple times. And then we get off into the really the just kind of like the setting up of the story right so um you see that the world is pretty bleak um there's a blight on the land meaning that it's like a dust bowl crops aren't growing anymore you can um murph has a father-in-law and he has a son and he has a daughter and they're all kind of working together on this farm 
Um, I think the really, Derek, you can cut me off here, but I think the most important piece that starts to happen here is they see a drone fly over. Right. And this is where the discovery and the curiosity really peaks is this drone flies over and they're they're in the pickup truck. They're following it. They're trying to catch it. And eventually they do. Right. And and Cooper and his family are able to track it down. Yeah. Well, the the really I think there's just such a mystery to how the beginning is framed up. The world is seemingly sparse so sparse so mysteriously sparse that you just start your mind just starts uh immediately wondering you know what is happening in the world right and there's hints and this is what i love about the way he tells the story is that there's such hints dropped about um the seriousness of the situation uh, i can give you an example later on in the movie basically where you know they're eating corn products total corn products from top to bottom for their meals um, because corn's the only thing that's growing, right? Um, now, I did see this one thing online, this, like, I don't know, review or whatever of the movie, and uh, it was just funny because the guy, it picked out specific uh, quote from Grandpa about okra, and he's like, this is the last crop for okra. And the guy on the review's like, oh, no, no more okra. <laughs> I love okra. I don't know. Yeah. but it's just funny to me and they don't really speak to like the blight you know what overall that is um some kind of a fungus or something that's taken off right and it's kind of pretty much eaten all the crops um i love that he's focused on this uh midwest heartland uh type frame up i think it's really cool um there's a certain shrinking that the human race is going through right now uh, right. And everything's pulling back. And it's like people are saying, like, you know, space, that didn't happen. You didn't didn't actually do those things. Right. You didn't actually go to the moon. You know that people are like saying that's a lie and a myth. And and I think that's fascinating how, you know, things are kind of pulling back and shrinking. So that's the that's the background. Here. Agrarian society. Right. Yeah. Right. And you're going back to you're basically trying to do risk aversion. Right. <clears throat> and we can talk about that later, about how during risk aversion, the world gets really small, right, for everybody involved. And that happens in business a lot, too. So we'll, we'll get back to that because I think that's a really important link here. Um, so let's let's walk through you know, kind of how you jump from picking up a drone in a cornfield, Drew, to kind of getting yeah. out in space. Yeah, so picking up the drone kind of sets the stage for what's going to happen here, right? It's like there's more happening than just there's farmers that are using some old technology to try and keep their lives going here. You know, there's got to be hope in this world. Um, this movie reminds me a lot of Star Wars. There are lines drawn to to the original Star Wars trilogy here that we might get into. But really, um, the, the next exciting part that happens here, so they go to the, um, you know, there's a discussion at the school that Cooper goes to and hears about his kids. And, and you know, you can just tell that his son, Tom, he's not, he and Tom don't necessarily see eye to eye. They're, Tom, and of course, inherits some of his traits, but he doesn't have most of them. But Murph, you can tell his daughter, who's younger than Tom, does inherit most of his traits. She's extremely curious the way that Cooper is. And so they're, you know, they're concerned about, about, uh, Murph having these dreams of grandeur um, of space exploration and stuff at the school, which is not what they're trying to teach at the school at this point, because they're just trying to survive. Um, they're really living out of scarcity. And so he's like, well, you know what? 
I'm going to punish her. I'll take her to a baseball game. And I think that that, that's just an awesome dad moment there where he's like, he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not listening to this ridiculousness. She's not hurting people. Um, This, and Murph ends up being right. Like the most important character in this world. So (laughs) it's, it's funny that like, yeah, she was, she and Cooper were on the right track the whole time and he knew it. So he takes her to the game at the game. There's like this dust bowl that comes in the cloud of dust. It forces them back to the house. They get inside and it's at this point when they first interact with the quote unquote ghost in Murph's room. And we see the dust that comes in through the window that she left open settle on the ground in these lines. And then Cooper kind of reads it and he's like, he's reads into it a little bit. Um, he's, he's a little bit spiritual, right? And that's going to be important throughout the movie. He reads into it and he's like, I think this is binary. Um, and he uses that to figure out the coordinates for a place that he wants to go. He reads them as coordinates and he's like, it's not that far from here. We're going to go. And so he goes there and lo and behold, it's NASA. Um, we find out there's there's a lot of really cool stuff in this scene. Derek, talk to me about the scene where he meets Michael Caine or Dr. John Brand's character at NASA. Well, before I go jumping totally into Michael Caine, <clears throat> I really like the the whole robot angle. I want to say that uh, how the robots were done is just unbelievable. Um, it's totally unique, totally different. Um, the fact that the, the the voices are literally human. Like every time you've seen a movie, right, you're always like, I am a robot. I talk like this. And that's not the way these things talk. They talk naturally and fluidly, just like a human would. However, the shape of these robots is like totally boxing, you know, boxed out. And I think that is such a unique way to portray robots um, that in a way that they relate to the humans is totally fluid. Their shapes and their forms may be different. Um, so anyway, that that was the first thing that struck me about going to NASA because, you know, he kind of gets like stopped by the robot. Right. It's just like mysterious in the background. And, and Amelia Brand is kind of like showing up and, you know, this robot here is like, this is my muscle. And I'm like, what is that? It's a square. It's a Lego block. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? <laughs> um, so, yeah, they meet Michael Caine and, you know, he starts talking about what they've been up to. Right. And uh, kind of leading on to, hey, we're we're going to take a trip you know, and starting to put out the opportunity. And of course that stokes the curiosity, right? Um, But it also rips Cooper right down the middle because why? Murph, right? That relationship. And he is literally torn uh, in such a dichotomous way. And curiosity is the party line, right? Where right down the middle, he just gets, you know, he's got to go. And yet, you know, he, he knows that Murph, needs her father and mm-hmm. we'll talk about how that plays out where he gets to do both you know yeah. spoiler alert <laughs> that, yeah it's the relationships that tie everything together right across all of the time and space and so he he meets Anne Hathaway Amelia Brand as well as uh Michael Caine's character and they like you said they kind of explain the mission they explain that there's a plan a and it's the centrifuge that's going to try and take off into orbit um and get off of the planet and then they have the plan b which is kind of this uh they call it uh what do they call it they call it the lazarus project right um where they send out these dozen astronauts um and they sent them out like a decade earlier and they're going to these planets to basically to start a new world 
that's the plan, right? That hopefully they'll be able to transmit back coordinates to the plan, you know, or transmit back information about the life on the planet. But if they can't, then they have these embryos that they're going to use to start a new human um, world. So basically to keep humans going. So yeah, they're just trying to find those planets, right? They're just trying to give back information and say, hey, come to, you know, so think about being on one of those missions, right? A one-way trip. I mean, you're really committing to a one-way trip. You're not, you know, and it's a bit of a contract of sorts, like, you know, thou shalt not give bad information, right? That's very important later on in the movie. How how does the human tendency to want to save yourself, you know, play into that? It plays into it pretty big, actually. Um, so, all right, keep going, Drew. I'm, I'm enjoying this. Yeah, it's going to take us a while to get through Interstellar today. We know that. I'm just making the audience <laughs> aware of that if you didn't look at the timestamp at the end of it. Um, so this next part is really critical for me. I, I think this scene with Cooper and Donald, his father-in-law, he's sitting on the porch. He's looking out over this dead and really dying world. And he's drinking a beer and he has this conversation with him. And he says, uh, Donald to Cooper basically says, like, you weren't made for this world. Like, you're, you're 40 years too early or 40 years too late, one or the other. You know, you're a, you're a discoverer, right? You're, you're an explorer. And that this, is, this world is about stasis right now. This world is about, you know, it's just kind of suspended in time, just trying to, humans are just trying to stay alive. And I think that, I just want to talk about that, Derek, because I think you and I have had a lot of conversations that we both feel that way sometimes. I'm not saying that every leader will feel that way, but I think that you will at times that, you know, you're either too early in time or you're too late in time. And it really does weigh on you um, because you just feel like you have these ideas and it's there's, you know, maybe five years ago there was money to implement them, but there's not now. Or, you know, you're never at the right place at the right time to capitalize on these things. And I think that's exactly how Cooper feels at this point. Yeah, as a leader, I think if if you really have that leadership bug in you, you know, deep, I think you're going to feel that no matter what the situation and circumstance, because you always see the vision. And when you see the vision um, there, it's uh, it's going to seem like. I mean, it's it's it, especially the big visions, you know, people around you aren't going to see it. And I have thought that many times in my life where I was like and, and you know, I won't say what generation or whatever I'm from, but I'm just saying, like, I am juxtap- uh, juxtaposed between two different generations right on a parting line, right on, you know, right on a fault line between two generations. And so I always like to say, you know, I have a certain phrase I say or whatever. I'm not going to say it on here, but. I basically describe one generation and then I say, but I also have the, uh, you know, characteristics of this other generation. And I think maybe that's what Cooper was kind of feeling is that, you know, when you're, when you're kind of stuck between two worlds, right. You know, he, he kind of, he's, you're kind of arguing, not arguing with both, but you're, you're making, you know, the case with both why they should change, why they should see things a little differently. Um, I'm trying to keep it general because I, I want this to be applicable, you know, when someone feels out of place as a leader because they see uh, the better vision for their organization, you know, that's, that's okay. That's good. That, that means that you're thinking about the right things, right? You're thinking about going in a positive direction. So, all right, keep going, Drew. You're good. That was great. 
Really appreciate that. I think that that will resonate with a lot of people. I know it resonates with me. So to end this conversation, uh, though, Donald does kind of assure Cooper that like, yeah, this I think what you're doing is right. Going on this mission, you know, it's you. It's it's why you're here. And but he does also encourage him to, to make things right with Murph because Murph is very concerned. Right. Tom, his son, is kind of like set in what he's going to do. He's excited to be a farmer and stuff. But Murph, like she's she's the youngest. She loves her dad and she's just like him. And so to lose him for an undeterminate amount of time is very scary for her. And that's that's the scene that we see the next day when he's um, he's leaving Murph's like, you know, afraid and he's in the room. This is a really, really like gut wrenching scene. And the books are falling off of the wall and Murph comes down and she's like, you know, and, and, and she's like, you know what the ghost is saying. What does the ghost say? Does the ghost say the ghost doesn't say don't go. The ghost says stay. Yeah, but at the time, obviously, that's completely like lost on her, you know, um, do you want to. So let's let's jump a little bit from that point, because I think that's where, you know, you know, he leaves. It's very emotional, et cetera. And then you get to the wormhole. Right. Yeah. Let's go at the wormhole right now. Let's let's just go to that point, because I think that's the next big, uh, you know, step here. Yeah, the wormhole scene is really weird the first time you watch it, but then the more times you watch it, the more you understand it and are kind of seeing like, oh, but and, and can I just talk about how Nolan portrays this and the team that works on this? Because they just do an amazing job with these planets, the black hole, the wormhole. It's just like now I have I'm not saying that these are like scientifically grounded like visuals of these things. But they visualize something that is very impossible to visualize in our three dimensions in a way that I can I feel like I understand it better afterwards. So I just want to give them props. So while it's not like perfect, it just like with the robots, they do such a good job of making these things fit within the universe and fit in our brains. Yeah, I do like that a lot. The um, the best thing that I saw was the wormhole from the outside and it being basically a bubble, right? A bubble in space. And so you actually can see it from three dimensions, um, something that takes you into the fourth. I don't know. It's confusing, right? Uh, space is confusing, but it folds on itself. And they did it. Like you said, they did a really good job of showing like how. And then when you go through it, I think it's really cool because it kind of turns into a little bit of a tunnel because that's kind of way we would understand it. And then you come out the other side. Right. And <clears throat> what is this first? Let's talk about this first planet that they get to, Drew. Yeah, so they the first planet that they get to, they go to Miller's planet. They decide to go to Miller, you know, one of the astronauts on the Lazarus missions. And they want to go here because it's first, but they need to stop very briefly um, because there is an issue with the timeline, essentially, right? The way that time is going to be affected because it's so close to one of these black holes, Gargantua, that they're, you know, it's or, it's essentially orbiting. And this planet... I mean, this scene is probably my favorite in all of movies. I can't think of one that's been more profoundly impacting on me. So I just lose it every time I watch this scene. And some people would, you know, some directors would kind of pull this off, but Nolan nails this scene. And so they go down to this planet, they go down to see Miller, and they, you know, they're like, what the heck? It's just Waterworld. <laughs> like, what's going on here? And then they're like going and they're trying to, they're finding like Miller's waypoint. And they get to his waypoint and they're like trying to they're like, oh, like, what happened? What happened? Why is it? You know, it, it seems like he just got. 
and they like realized that even they, the like genius astronauts, somehow didn't realize that he was only going to have been there for for an hour or whatever before. Like yeah. the way the time works, yeah. he just got to that planet and they're just getting there after him. And then the wave comes and they're forced to deal with this situation. And in this crisis, right, Cooper really nails this crisis. And uh, Amelia is kind of dedicated to getting this research. She really wants to get like Miller's research. And I think, I don't know if Cooper is just kind of, you know, reacting quickly or he actually understands what's going on quicker where he's just like, we don't need it. It doesn't matter. He didn't get any information. He's only been here for an hour. We have to go. Um, but they lose Doyle, the other uh, the other astronaut that's on the mission with them. And it's just this tragic moment. And Amelia really feels like she let everybody in the crew down. Um, but Cooper reassures yeah. her. What'd you say? She panicked and she really revealed probably for the first time that she's kind of an emotional person, right? That she is not, she's not an unstable person, but she she definitely um you know has her moments where her emotions unseat uh the logic in her mind right and she she lost the thought of self-preservation in that moment right she was just like um you know she just got emotional she's she gets in these conflicts of emotion and logic right where she's like i gotta get this log i gotta get this log because i i don't want to mess up you know uh, that kind of thing. I don't want to lose an opportunity. So she's this in this tug of war constantly with her emotions. And um, I think that's a neat, a neat thing that, uh, you know, Nolan plays with throughout the story. And we'll, we'll talk about it. She's really, I mean, I think she's very complex and in some ways very simple, but um, so let's, uh, let's keep talking through. Back, you know, uh, back to the best, <laughs> the best scene ever really when they come back so then they they eventually pivot they have to let the let the jets the water clear out of the jets so they can uh they can take off and they take off they get back to the ship and they they step off of it and rom is there and he looks much much older and they're both just kind of somber and they're just like how much time did we lose um, and Rom tells them it's been 23 Earth years since they took off. And this moment, I, I don't think that this this isn't the moment for us today, so I don't want to get too far into it. But I mean, I'm just I'm letting it on. I, I don't cry in every movie, but I'll cry in like a Christopher Nolan movie in, in a really good movie. And I, I cry every time when I watch this scene, you know, you just tear up watching this fast forward of 23 years and of the relationships and of his children really like trying to let go of him. And he has no way to respond to it. Cooper doesn't. And it is, without going into each of those interactions, Derek, what do you take away from that? Uh, relativity is very unfair. <laughs> and it puts you into situations that are essentially hyperbolic, um, that you should never be in hyperbolic trauma like that. That is just the worst um, that he had to go through and see and see that he was going it's like loss so he had experienced loss he had experienced gain um he gained a a, a grandchild that he never met and he experienced loss of grandpa uh he experienced loss of his relationship with his son and then to top it all off you know murph is like you know calling him a name and it threw her extreme disappointment which is a catalyst of this you know, the rest of the movie, basically, that her disappointment drives her um, 
she basically wants to disprove her disappointment. She feels disappointment, but she wants to disprove it. And you see those bricks laid right there uh, in that scene. Brilliant. So after this, um, so we do see that an important plot point is just that Murph now is working for NASA. She's followed in Cooper's footsteps. So despite the fact that she's trying to kind of distance herself from the father that she feels like, let her go, she is absolutely resilient. She is hopeful and she is pushing for the future of humanity. She's working with Dr. Brand. So really Murph is going to continue to be the um, be the hope that the Earth needs at this point, um, especially with Cooper kind of lost to the nebula at this point. So after this, they, they have to make a decision and they decide to go to man's planet. They have two, two more planets that are potentially inhabitable. They have um, Edmund's planet and man's planet and they decide to go to man's planet. And this is this is the point. This, this is awesome. I don't want to spend any time on this, but the fact that like Matt Damon is not advertised as being in this movie, and then suddenly Matt Damon is in this movie, and you're just like, Christopher Nolan, you did it again. <laughs> the first time I remember seeing it in theaters, uh, Gateway Theater down next to Ohio State's campus. I, I vividly remember seeing this movie and just losing my mind so many times in it. Um, yeah, so his then, character is hilarious. Just the way he pulls it off and. It's it's typical Matt Damon the way I look at it. The guy wants to be a wild card, and he is certainly a wild card in this one. Uh, he is a, a nervous, logical um, man, and he is conniving, right? He is he's got a front uh, that he talks about the planet. He makes this case to temporarily convince them just long enough so he can figure out what the next move is, and. On that planet, he makes his move, doesn't he? Do you want to talk about the planet just for a second? I mean, it's ice. Yeah, so, yeah they land it's on this. <laughs> yeah, it's they like land on the Hoss planet. Yeah, exactly, right? And so it's not hopeful on the outside because it's just like this ice world, essentially, um, which, I mean, I guess means that there's water. So that's kind of hopeful. But he's like, yeah, this is, you know, on the on the inside, outside of this exoplanet, there's, you know, like that we got going on here, kind of like there's that's not the right use of the word exoplanet, whatever. If there's something going on uh, underneath of here and he's trying to tell him this story and you can kind of see that he's been rehearsing this story. This is premeditated since before when he went into cryo sleep. These lies he's been thinking about for years as he's been alone on this planet that he's going to spin up. It's not just in the moment this like him freaking out. And he lets that on multiple times, like in the way that he talks that. He's been thinking about this for years. He's already made this decision that he's going to that, you know, you know, that he's going to have to lie to them if they're not going to go along with it. Yeah. Think about that, that, you know, there's a part of humanity, right, that's just going to sit there and kind of put together that, you know, and OK, so if they show up, right, you know, this is how I preserve myself. Now, I'm going to use the the overall goal of preserving the human race as my real reason on top. But. If you really go back down to, you know, Cooper nails it at one point, he's just like, you're a coward, you know, the moment he realizes it and that they're tussling, which is, can we talk about the cinematography for a second? You know, I'll, I'll do the pause on this one, hit the cinematography because I love it. When you think about the ridiculousness of two astronauts who have made it so far, um, the priority Definitely got shifted around somewhere when you're fighting on an ice planet in the middle of nowhere and you're thinking, I'm going to fight you. What in the world? Right. Who would do that? And when you and, and so Nolan zooms out 
and this is like really big for me. I don't know about you, Drew, but when I saw them fighting and then it zoomed out and you see how small they are fighting over the stupidest things, right? The smallest things, the fact that he can't trust them. That's what it comes down to. Man thinks he's smarter than everybody else, so he can't trust them. I can't validate you. I can't trust you. Therefore, I have to like take your long range transmitter and I have to push you on the ground. And I'm going to take one of your ships because I don't trust you to finish the mission. Uh, micromanager much? And this is like the most aggressive, right? And he kind of promotes himself to manager, right? In this, in this <laughs> moment, right? And he starts, a, you know, he starts this whole sequence where he just like, you know, he's, he's laid this trap for Romilly, right? Romilly like tries to figure out being the, uh, Romilly is this this steady curiosity, and you know, uh, you know, curiosity killed the cat, right? And that kind of thing, and it really did in the movie. It got Romilly, right? Yeah, uh, I think that when we, okay, so we do need to set the groundwork here. So they do wall once they wake man up, they get this notification. You know, they get a message from Murph, and she's completely distraught. Um, Dr. Brand has died and on his deathbed, he's told her that he already solved the gravity equation and that plan A just isn't going to work, right? He couldn't reconcile relativity. Um, rel what does he say? He couldn't recognize relativity, reconcile relativity with quantum physics or something. So it's not going to, they can't get the ship to take off essentially with uh, with humanity on it. They can't save humanity that way. And he, he knew it the whole time. And so there's kind of this fight um and and Amelia and Cooper didn't know about this and so they're you know they're both losing their mind especially Cooper because he's like if that's true then I've completely left my son and daughter to die and everything I just did I can't win no matter what happens I basically can't win and he's just I mean that's a, a really gutting moment and then man man comes in here and man knows about this, or at least he he acts like he knows about this. And I think that's pretty ridiculous that he like with what he comes in here and says, and he just totally like you were saying, he just validates um, the position that Dr. Brand took on this. He's just like, yeah, somebody had to do it right. Like somebody had to make that sacrifice. And that's I, I mean, that's ridiculous. He says he was man says he was prepared to destroy his own humanity to save the species. And he looks at him like a hero. So we'll come back to that. But he looks at him like a hero for being willing to do that. And that is, in my opinion, that is a bad viewpoint. And that only happens when your yeah, your mind gets crooked from maybe being alone for too long or too much pride or something. Yeah, well, man, man has a paradoxical operating uh, parameter here. You know, basically, he. On the one hand, he's wanting to save the entire species, but yet he has no hope. What? What kind of leadership is that where you you say you're doing the right thing, but you actually have no hope for even a plan that some might see as a distraction, right? They might see as a red herring, but not Murph, right? Murph believed in that plan, and she proved that, you know, through the end of the movie. Um, so anyway – I just thought it is interesting to point out that he is completely paradoxical and it collapses on him. Um, <laughs> just like the Tesseract. <laughs> it just yeah, it does. Collapses, it right? 
<laughs> is all the way in on him. So let's let's jump to the moment here now. And our moment, there are so many moments you could do in Interstellar. Um, but our moment for today is going to be the interlocking sequence. So the team saves Cooper. Well, obviously, actually, Rom doesn't make it. So at this point, Rom and Doyle um, haven't made it anymore. But the robots and Amelia managed to save Cooper just like before he runs out of air. Um, and he oxygen <laughs> and he they get back on the ship and man is ahead of them trying to get back to the the big spaceship that they're using to travel and he's going to try and like you said he promotes himself to manager and he's going to try and take control of this but he doesn't have a robot that's going to help him to uh to mate with the ship essentially so talk to me about that the moment with man there yeah, I mean, I think they had a great strategy to stop him. They starved him of uh, critical resources to accomplish his task, right? So they couldn't get him directly, but they they were able to take away a few key things so that he failed. Um, unfortunately, this risk game that they had to play resulted in some loss of the endurance. And so they're playing a high risk high risk game here. But isn't this whole movie a fragile high risk game? We'll get back to that. Um, but the, the, the quote, you know, is just so telling, uh, with man, right. This is not about my life or Cooper's life, but all mankind, there is a moment and then boom, right. The endurance takes off and starts spinning uncontrollably. And this is our moment. This moment is, is awesome. And, and, and I think the moment that follows is kind of caught up in this, in this moment as well. And, um, but so when Cooper and, and Amelia and the robots do succeed, at, and I shouldn't even just say the robots, right? Tars, Tars is the one that's on there. And Tars is really a character in this movie. He's not just a robot, but they come back in and they now they have to do a much more complicated maneuver, right? They're going to have to interlock with the ship as it's moving. And everything is spinning around at a thousand miles an hour. And the whole story up until this point has been this descent into chaos and everything is starting to spin faster and faster. They're closer to the black hole. Humanity's closer to the brink. And this this moment is kind of the pivot point. It's the catch point where everything can either be completely lost or we're going to see a straightening out and a stability. Now, the cool thing is, is right now, simultaneously, take yourself back to Earth. Murph is having her moment as well to sync up. She's trying. The whole world is spinning. Everything is being messed up. We got people getting sick, uh, people dying of, uh, you know, lung issues, different things. They can't breathe. And her entire world is spinning. The crops are on fire. Uh, if you, you know, take yourself back to those scenes where there's just flames coming out of the. I mean, that that is not a settling scene, right, where you see nothing but smoke, just tons and tons and tons of smoke, a lot of confusion. They are uh, her and her dad are encountering the same thing at the same time, the same type of problem, complete chaos. And they're both looking to lock on. Right. And finally, she locks onto the watch as he locks on to endurance. And he so he brings endurance back out of orbit. Um, we can go. We will go back to this moment, um, you know, when we talk about leadership. But this this is a moment that is so rich with uh just lessons um because leaders they aren't going to be effective until they do the sync up to what is spinning and until you can 
you know, really synchronized, you know, when, when the robot says 68 RPM, 69 RPM, whatever that is, you have to do some kind of analysis of the rate of spinning. You have to get a feel. Leaders have to get a feel for what's going on. Um, you can't necessarily measure that with logic and metrics. You have to get a feel for what's happening. And when you do, it's going to seem like you're making moves that people just like, wow, where did that come from? It came from the feeling, the feeling that most people ignore. Right, Drew? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the gut feel that the good kind of gut feel that that allows you to take the risk. Right. Um, in that moment, everything's going to be lost if they don't act quickly. And so he does that. He, he syncs it up. Um, and he he does it just in time and he relies on the the rest of the team to help him out to be able to do that um, their combined intuition and intelligence and that that in, in any great achievement you have to have a moment like that obviously you you know the fate of humanity might not rest on you in that moment but there will be a moment like that where everything has to be synchronized otherwise you're just kind of accomplishing these one-off tasks um, but at some point, you have to have the synchronization of all of these things all at once. And of course, Nolan does a, a fantastic job of this, where there's a lot of movies that fail to, to show that synchronization all at the end and have it be believable. But with Nolan, it is believable. And the interlocking of everything is so important, right? So the idea is that where man's failed to interlock and he has this, this hubris, right, this false pride in himself, um, Cooper has faith in humanity. He has faith in his daughter. He, he knows that, yeah, if we can just keep going, there's a solution that's going to be that's going to save Earth. Right. He doesn't want to give up on that. He's just not willing to do so. And so he keeps going and he looks for that interlock. And that that interlock is where the whole story is kind of tied together in that moment. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, well, let's let's kind of fast forward the rest of the story here so we can get to the mentors, the mentor relationships that we see in the movie. Um, yep. Ultimately, in the end, right, uh, they save the endurance. Um, they make a slingshot, uh, you know, around Gargantua uh, black hole stuff. Don't, you know, obviously all spoilers here, but, you know, um, they end up getting where they need to go. Cooper and Tars end up going into Gargantua, going through it, uh, getting critical information about the singularity. And, you know, sacrificing themselves, or at least we think, you know, that he has sacrificed himself. And however, one of the cool things that Nolan actually does in this movie uh, versus, let's say, um, you know, some of the other ones is like, you know, you actually see a conclusion that, you know, there's there's actually a conclusion. But of course, he always leaves it like an open thing. So Cooper makes it through, right, changes everything. And and then we see Cooper go back off into space, which is, you know, got so many people out there like going into these threads about Interstellar 2 and all this stuff not happening. Uh, at least not my, you know, my opinion. Yeah, Nolan never makes, Nolan doesn't make sequels. He won't make a sequel yeah. there. Yeah, I do think. Yeah, we'll come back to the we'll come back to what happens inside of Gargantua. So I think it's fair to skip over that really quickly. But, yeah, he gets dropped back out of the warp hole at the, you know, outside of Saturn. Um, and he gets picked up as does Tars. He goes back and he sees that there's like a museum um, of his house and that he's on Cooper Station and he mistakes it for being named after himself. And they're like, no, that's named after Murph. Um, so then he does and he meets Murph, right? Murph's been in cryosleep for two years, but he, he's able to meet his daughter 
And his daughter's, you know, she's at the end of her life and he's just in the middle of his still. But there's just this beautiful moment there where that they share and that you can tell that their relationship goes across time and space. And that relationships are really all about like or what leadership is all about. Right. Like there's no point in it if it's not about the relationships and the development of each other. And Cooper and Murph, this leads us into the mentor relationship. Right. Cooper, while being distant from Murph was able to develop Murph somehow. And he kind of gets a little bit lucky there, as you always have to, to do something, you know, to do something, pull something great off. But he's able to develop Murph, and Murph, vice versa, is able to develop Cooper because she becomes older than him at some point in this story, and she's the only one who's able to directly reach him. So it's kind of this weird, like, mentor-mentee, mentee-mentor relationship that they have with each other. Yeah, I love the reciprocity there. Um I think he puts the seed in. So somebody always has to seed it first. If you're going to have relativity in a mentor relationship, which we, we've never really experienced before. Um, and this is part of the things that made me emotionally react, which is this back and forth of, you know, they're basically in an age race in a way. Right. So, you know, um, they get to be the same age at one point and then she outstrips him and becomes older than him. Uh, at least, you know, aging wise, like her body ages more than his body. Um, technically, by time, you know, he's the oldest. He's always going to be the oldest because, as Amelia says, you know, time can be squished and all this stuff, but it can't be reversed. Right. Um, and I think that is that was such a neat way to see that relationship play out. Um, but he put in the first investment. Right. Because he's the parent. And. When he put this investment in, he had enough of an investment. She was 10 years old. And I've read places that once you're seven, your worldview is baked. Um, the way that you see the world, the way that you interpret the world, it's baked. And so she knew Cooper long enough to know how he saw the world. And he had influenced her at a seed level um, that then that seed continued to grow. And that was honestly his slingshot maneuver this entire movie um, and really sets up, you know, the mentor mentee relationship is 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 really uh, just a, a beautiful thing as it blossoms throughout. Of course, you're going to have these rough moments. Of course, you're going to have these emotional doubt moments. Right. That's where she you know, reacted in such a strong way and said the names that she said or whatever. Right. And, you know, she had that anger because she was she was afraid that, you know, the seed of the man that, you know, that she knew when she was 10 years old may not come to be true. But then he seals the deal on Cooper station when she meets him. Right. And she said, I mean, and this just gets me so emotional. because She's like, my dad promised me. And I like, every time I watch that, I lose that. I lose my composure at that point because I'm just like, how important is it in a, in a parent child relationship when a parent promises you, you know, and and think about, you know, mentor mentee is it's it's similar, but it's not going to get you that. I mean, it depends on how long you've had that mentor. Right. Um, I think if you had a long term mentor, um, it, you know, those moments could also be, you know, really, in, you know, important as well. You know, that promise, you know, so well, the integrity really comes back around. Right. Because that's what that is. Being true to your word is integrity. And it comes back around because she loses faith, at least externally, in Cooper um, when she believes that he knew, or at least she's hypothesizing that he knew that he was never coming back. 
but she regains it when he passes her this information from the black hole that then allows her to overcome the the gravity the problem of gravity um, to be able to succeed with plan A to launch humanity into space and that intensity so just just for one second because I just I want to do the engineering thing right now so <laughs> when I watched the movie I was thinking to myself she's not going to sit there and transcribe what I would think would be gigabytes of data, okay? It may even be terabytes of data, you know? So kudos to Nolan for kind of glossing over it, but as a as an engineer, you know, uh, someone of engineering background, um, you know, really the idea of that, I think the best way to do that in modern terms, and again, I'm just being nerdy here, but I have to say it, because um, this is a wonder tour and we're wondering about things, right? Um, would be some kind of a machine learning algorithm to watch the second hand on the on the watch, right? And to essentially turn those uh, deflections of that second hand into ones and zeros. Just saying, that's how I would do it. I would have a live feed on that thing, and then you'd have to record it until it looped. Okay, I, I, I've said it. I've got it out. Thank you very much. No, I love Back it. That's, yeah, I, that's fully what I believe happened, right? They have AI that's pretty advanced. We can see it with TARS and CASE and stuff. So. I'm thinking that they have AI that's good enough to uh, to recognize video and be able to to figure out the Morse code and stuff that he's pushing through there. Um, I like it. I like it. Sometimes we got to go down those those ideation rabbit holes there. Um, but I think that's one thing that we can we can take away from this mentor mentee relationship though. And I had a leader tell me this um, a, a while back that I have a high respect for. Um, his name's BB. I'll probably reference him multiple times here, but he's just a fantastic guy. And he, he told me like, you really have to have integrity in your interactions with people because when you tell somebody you're going to do something, you need to follow through on it. That's, what's going to build trust in their relationship. That's, what's going to give them hope. And that, you know, as humans, we fail at that. We always will. It's, it turns out you always end up promising something that you, you can't deliver on, but you get better at it over time. And I think like Derek, like you said, the most important place to, to have integrity is with your family members, because those relationships are for a lifetime. You can't, you're never going to lose those relationships ideally. So you want to make sure that you don't overpromise things. So you, you, you want to be careful to protect their view of the world while not promising that this is an absolute this is just the way that it will be when you can't deliver on it because they you know especially kids see more than you know and they'll remember that moment and that moment will be the thing that will you know that that will drive a wedge yeah i mean and also remember that you know you you still kind of are a child inside you know you got to remember how you you know you you kind of you can think back I think that's the best thing to do here is think back to some of the promises that have been made to you and how that made you feel. And if you think through those things and you think through promises delivered and you can think through promises not delivered, um, it will make you consider how you make promises in the future. And, um, you know, this this movie definitely makes me want to follow through on everything I've ever promised. I don't promise lightly, though. I don't promise lightly to anybody I'm working with, you know. Um, if I do <clears throat> make some kind of an assertion that says I'm going to do something, I may end up using softening words like I'm going to try possibly, <laughs> um, 
if I say I'm going down no matter what, if this doesn't work, this is going to take me down. You know, that's a serious assertion that a leader needs to consider. I'm not saying don't do it because you very much need passion to accomplish very big things. And if you are not committed yourself to doing the big things, then how do you expect to lead um, someone else to do those big things? So they have to see that you're in it. I always joke, I would say you're in it to win it. You know, I know there's somebody else has said that or whatever, but I just think it's funny because it, it gets people it, it one thing, it disarms people because you just said a rhyme. Right. So and it sounds cool and it's almost like you're rapping, but like I'm in it to win it. You know, and sometimes I'll do that. I'll just rhyme, um, you know, to get people like to, to accept the knowledge or sorry, to accept the wisdom of what I'm trying to say um, to commit. And, and make your commitments known is a leadership trait. And, and Cooper did that. You know, I'm taking off. I got to do this. Uh, he didn't, you know, he didn't like the consequences of doing that. But in the end, he made good on his promises. And he got ridiculed throughout the movie uh, because he was making good on his promise. You can't go back home. What? What's wrong with you? You know, people were ridicule. You know, your your greatest promises and assertions, maybe at times, because they don't understand the depth of what it means to you. It doesn't mean that, you know, your your promise to uh, those do you love is is wrong. It doesn't mean that at all. It just it just means they don't understand, you know, so try to have compassion on those people, too, you know, and think about how, you know, they they may just not fully grasp the depth of what you know, you're trying to communicate through your relationships. So, which I think brings us to the moral part. What do you think? Yeah, I think that definitely takes us to our moral. And we've kind of touched on our first moral, which is curiosity, right? So we've mentioned that a handful of times. This movie is all about curiosity. You know, when I'm looking at people that I want to have on a team to do something, when I'm looking at things to, you know, ideals to instill in other people and in myself, curiosity is one of the things at the top of the list because curiosity is going to sustain you when you have boring tasks or when you have very hard tasks um, that are going to require you to to think outside of your normal systems. And that's something that Cooper and Murph specifically exhibit, as does Amelia um, as do really the the people on the Lazarus missions as well with with Mann and Edmonds and and Miller and everybody else. Yeah, I think uh, you know having curiosity. Uh, there are I think there's two types of people in this world. I think there are ones that have innate curiosity, and um, you know that's great. Um, though those people may not necessarily use it, though, you know, but they do typically it's like it's like something you can't turn off, really. So I don't I don't know that I've ever met someone who has innate curiosity and is able to kind of ignore it. You know, um, it's hard to ignore something that makes you, you know, go around wondering about things. You know, we are obviously two very curious people. We want to see how things are what connected. Right. We want to see the connections between things. Um and so, but then there's people who don't necessarily innately have curiosity, but I think they can develop an appreciation for curiosity. I think you can do that. Um, now, 
where where does curiosity you know become annoying for you is curiosity construed as being annoying if it is i think you may want to consider what is the value proposition for curiosity the value proposition for curiosity in business is to understand the why of what we're doing things and i'm not trying to be uh you know trite you know quoting simon sinek but i'm just saying like I really want to know, honestly. And I and what it comes across as sometimes is me asking a series of questions that are very similar but slightly skewed every time. Slight difference in perspective in order to understand something completely. And that tends to drive people one of two ways. One, for a curious person, they're like, I would love to explain that because I've been thinking about this a long time. Someone who's not curious saying, why are you wasting my time? You're asking me the same question over and over. They don't notice the subtleties, but this is a skill that I think you can develop in yourself over time is think about the subtleties of how someone's question is changed over a series of questions. If you see similar requests from someone, I think the best thing to do is to have empathy for that person and think about why they're asking questions that are so similar to each other. If you think about that, you will go a long way in appreciating curiosity. And I think that's really a good making of a leader today because frankly, there's there's just so many spikes in the system. Like the system out there has generated a lot of spikes. A lot of people are really good at one thing, um, but what the challenge i think in business today is to be able to to connect those things together it, it, you know concepts you know you may be good at one particular concept you know Brene brown right uh, she's really good at explaining vulnerability right that's like one of her things um and i think she's going to be known for that for a very 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 long time right how do you connect you know vulnerability to other leadership traits and truly make this a palette of, you know, and I think she tried, you know, she's obviously working on doing that, you know, et cetera, in her own work. And I, I think she's doing a great job at it. Um, but that's just an example, like, you know, where I think of concept associated with one person, you know, um, how do you there's grow also curiosity. How do you grow curiosity in yourself? Because what if I'm listening to this and I don't have that innate curiosity? Because I think that you're just preaching to the choir if you're talking to people who have innate curiosity. I mean, I, Derek, I, you know, have these sessions with you, these jam sessions where we just bouncing off questions back and forth, back and forth. And like you said, they're just small variations on the same questions, essentially trying to get to the nugget at the bottom of it. I mean, I had a meeting yesterday. It's really just a meeting of the minds where we kind of help each other with two, you know, brilliant data scientists. And we just kind of ask each other questions about the data problems that we're trying to solve um, to try to get to those unique solutions and a unique understanding of the problem, really a perspective we haven't seen before. And those are people with innate curiosity. But if you don't have that innate curiosity and you're trying to develop it, I think, like you said, it really starts with asking better questions. Um, uh, to quote Robert Langer, who's uh, a professor at MIT, he's been called the Edison of medicine. Um, when you're a student, you're judged by how well you answer questions. Somebody else asks the questions, and if you give good answers, you'll get a good grade. But in life, you're judged by how good your questions are. They'll become great professors, great entrepreneurs, great somethings if they ask good questions. Yeah, I mean, 
that I really like that statement. And you have to, I think one way, I'll just give you one takeaway from this curiosity thing. We can move on to the next moral, but um, the don't look at asking questions about something that you think you already know as a waste of time. If you can just position yourself with an open mind, and I don't mean like try everything. I'm just saying just be open to what you think objectively about something. Um, and don't worry about how much time it takes you to think about that. I think that's the number one thing because I, it's a trite thing again, but it's like, you know, busy, 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 busy. You know, that's that's today's world. Right. But if you just it, curiosity takes slowing down. And it takes accepting the fact that it's going to take you a little time to wonder about this thing, this thing and that thing, you know, whatever it may be. So, yeah, I think you can get, you can you want to surround yourself with people that are curious and ask good questions. That's how I've gotten better at asking good questions is by being around people like you, Derek, who do do ask those good questions and just picking up on how they ask them and what they ask. And I've also I do want to talk for just one second about data because my experience with data has influenced, of course, how my how I think. And so when you ask questions, if you come from a background of data, those questions are often geared towards understanding subsets of the problem, right? So let's take the Titanic data set. We're looking at, you know, one of the most popular data sets in the world. This data set is all about, you know, here's here's the characteristics of the people that were on the Titanic and then you have if they lived or died and stuff like that, right? So you have all these characteristics of these people um, on the Titanic and you, you're trying to make sense of these categories essentially as you're looking at it. So you, you first you're looking at like, is there differences between male and female? Is there differences between the age ranges and stuff like that? That's how I like to think about problems. I'm just trying to dissect it. I'm trying to figure out these like elements of the problem and separate them out from the bigger problem. And that's where my curiosity leads me is to try, can we make a conclusion or at least a correlation on a small subset of what we're thinking about? Because if we can, we have a hypothesis that we can test on a larger subset. And I think that that's something that in, in a movie, it's hard to do that because you don't have the ability to show the problem solving process. But I think Cooper does do that, right? Because he's you see it with like the drone and with the farming and stuff. He's learning and he's testing these small hypotheses about how things work, right? He has this previous experience with NASA. He's he's tested these hypotheses before and he has this belief that there is a solution that he can uh, that he can push through. So I know we we are really going over on this one, but I, I just want to try to provide some context for how do how do I solve problems? And I wanna learn how other people solve problems as well. I mean, that's one of the most exciting things for me is when I meet somebody who solves problems differently than I have any models in my head to solve them because it allows me to take and put those pieces in my toolbox. Well, and I think that's a perfect, uh, you, know, vent, you know, way into this, the next moral, which is that, you know, when you're leaders bet big, right? And, uh, you know, I caution anybody to bet big, but I'm just saying it's something you build up to. OK, you start making decisions in a certain direction. And Cooper uh, first made the decision, which was kind of a big one. And this is typically what starts is it comes some kind of a breaking type decision, right, where you break with your norms. And he starts to bet big and he starts to um, he starts this leverage in the entire movie that really is a series of what I call double downs. 
And I'm, you know, as he gets to a decision point, he's like, I'm doubling down. And he gets to another decision point, I'm doubling down. So think about, okay, he doubles down, gets on the rocket, right? Goes up into space. Okay, now we're going to the wormhole. I'm doubling down again. I'm going through this wormhole, right? I get to the planet. We lose Doyle, okay? I, I, I double down on sparking the engines, getting off the planet. Get up to the thing, right? And he doubled down on the, the relativity several times, right? The whole movie is one big leveraged bet the farm. He left the farm. He bet the farm on his son. Then he goes and gets up into space and he bets the farm again because the farm is counting on him, right? And he continues to bet the farm the entire rest of the movie. And that is how you can connect all these sequences. And that's why it's such a just an emotional like when you think about all the leadership decisions that have to be made. This is literally someone who's driven by pure hope, right? And but I want to call to um, call call into attention, right? That the fragility of all this, right? The spaceships fragile. The human vessels are fragile. They're aging due to relativity. The, the spaceships themselves, you hear them rattle and shake the entire movie, right? Every time they go through some kind of a physical event. You just wonder, is this whole thing going to fly apart? These people like are mad at each other, right? They get angry at each other, right, Drew? And they, 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 you know, there's all this fragility going on in the entire movie. And I think that's why it is such a powerful leadership lesson because that's exactly how it works, isn't it? When you, when you make and you bet big, give me some, give me, you know, just, some examples of your, you know, of, you know, from lessons you've had in real life, how you've, you've bet big on certain things and that feeling that Cooper has probably the entire movie, you know? Yeah. Betting big is really important. I mean, you can, you can bet big on a project, um, that you need, right. A project that's more than just a, that's more than just a point solution, but it's a platform. So I've bet big on platforms and that, that bet big, it's kind of like we were talking about before with the integrity. Now you need to follow through and find a way to deliver on that. Because once you've bet big on it, that's you kind of have to go through that obstacle. That's now your next obstacle, and you have to find a way to overcome it. And then once you complete that, if you succeed, you've garnered more capital. You you know, you've you now you have better footing, but again, you're going to need to gamble again. And as we talked about before, the risk aversion, kind of like the way that the world is at the beginning of the movie, when you're seeing this like super risk averse, everybody's just like, well, we'll just farm until we die. That's not that's not humans flourishing, right? So when you find yourself in an organization that operates that way, like reflection is needed. We must reflect, we must change our trajectory or we will not flourish in the future. So that's that's the idea of scarcity versus abundance, right? If we're living out of scarcity and we're stuck in this mindset of we ne we don't have enough, we'll never have enough, so we'll just like keep scraping by, then we're going to always be just scraping by. But if we start to live like Cooper does out of abundance, which says we have more than enough, you know, we have everything we need, um, and it's all we, we have. We only have all that we have, so we're going to have to use it, and we're going to have to make a way with it. And that's what he does every single time. He makes a way with what he has, right? The ship, part of the ship blows up. He makes a way. He puts, you know, he uses the the smaller ship as the as as the thruster to get it going, right? Yeah, it's it's a lesson in strategy. So there's there's operational, but the vision doesn't change. We're going to find a planet to land on, and you can see how operationally though he has to make pivots. So I do want to, you know, just highlight this uh, and we'll kind of start to wrap up. But 
the um, you know the scale of you know what he bets in the movie. You know that's that's way big. When we say bet big, you know it's all relative. It's all relative to the context that you're in. So you know don't think that we're like hey let's bet a million dollars. No, just use your best judgment, right? Um, think through what you're doing, but um, you know as a leader, and if you don't know, keep you know thinking of ways that you can grow in in small steps. Uh, towards that goal of, you know, betting big, betting big for a relative in a relative sense, right? Because that's what it is. It's all relative to where you're at right now. So if you're just starting out as a leader, you know, you're, you're bet big, maybe just taking a, a risk of your, um, the way you look, you know, optics, optics can be very important when you're starting out, right? Um, just getting people to trust you, building those initial relationships. So again, use your best judgment, Think in terms of the context of where you're at as a leader right now. Um, we're not all going to be set up in this dream scenario where we get to save the entire universe. That's not going to happen. Um, so be realistic. Um, and, you know, but think about how Cooper does it. Now, I, I would say, you know, from a leadership and strategic perspective, make part of your portfolio something what Cooper did, right? Where you may have a big bet. Don't put the whole thing on that. You know, when Cooper bets the farm, he's forced into doing that in the movie, but you don't necessarily have to do that in your particular situation. You may have a portfolio of ideas. A lot of those ideas may be quite conservative. You may have one moonshot right in there. Some people, they I think they make a mistake having too many moonshots. They may have a moonshot portfolio of 80%. And what that does is it spends the trust. And you talk about integrity, like what Drew was talking about before, you know, integrity is following through on what you say you're going to do. If you have a moonshot portfolio, you know, where you have 80% of it as moonshots, are you going to be able to actually follow through on what you say you're going to do? Yeah, it gets, gets a little dicey, doesn't it? And so, Drew, I mean – you can't you can't be making all these big promises all the time. You've got to be coming through on a lot of things and have some small percentage of it be maybe this high risk, you know, Cooper type promises, you know. Part of it. Yeah. Part of it's where you're going to put your is are you going to have too much pride in it? Because a prideful person will take too many moonshots because they will assume that their past successes are indicative of their future successes. And they'll fly too close to the sun to take the Icarus analogy, right? They're gonna they're gonna think that they can do it because oh well, my last two projects were successful, or the last initiative I tried to implement worked out really well. And so you always have to be wary of. It, it all takes wisdom. That's what we're getting at in in Wonder Tour. And I think that the last piece that I just I, I have to tack on here and I have to talk about, and it's not really even a tack on because you'd be crazy if you thought we weren't going to go back after skipping over the the uh, ending, kind of the last penultimate scene there um where cooper goes into this like cube shaped fifth dimension um he's in the tesseract as they call it um which kind of like floats across time if you learn anything from the avengers it, it like goes across time so he's using this so in the tesseract what do we learn right what can we learn from this interaction here and i, I want to take away something that i really with nolan i think this is this is intended to some extent is this comparison between humanity and higher beings, right? Gods. So humanity is being compared to them. And, and I think we have to look at the names of the characters, right? Derek, 
The easy one is man. Look at talk to me about man and and why he is apt for his name. Well, I mean, he's he's pretty self-serving. He's pretty, you know, selfish, which is kind of the the default for man, humans, right? That we naturally want to be selfish. Is that kind of what you're thinking of? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he falls prey to the normal inklings of humanity, even though he's this this supposedly great guy who goes on this Lazarus mission to try and save the world with no hope of coming back. He always assumed that he was going to come back. He says that. And he has too much pride in himself to be able to let go of his own life for the sake of others. And that's not what we want to see in a leader. And now contrast this with Cooper's character. So this is really funny, but the first thing that comes up if you look up like the meaning of the name Cooper on Google is barrel maker or barrel fixer. And that seems weird, but I think that that actually is what Nolan may have intended here. At least that's my understanding of it, because look at the look at everything and see the, the barrels that there are in this story. So he has this barrel, um, obviously the, the Cooper station at the end, it's a barrel, right? It's all kind of like turned in on itself, right? He's, the universe is kind of like a barrel. He is the barrel fixer and not just him, but Murph. They're both Coopers, they're barrel fixers, right? They're the people that are, that are going to sacrifice to save humanity. And so I just want to point out here that there's all these kind of, um, these edges of transhumanism that are being pushed at, um, where, where Cooper's kind of talking about, you know, are we, did the gods, you know, find me worthy and save me or did, did future humans kind of like do a time loop? Nolan's exploring the time loop that he explores many times in his movies, but it's like your future humans kind of coming back to save us. Yeah. I mean, everything loops back on itself in this movie. I mean, there's so many loops, right? There's like you say, the ships are going in loops that you're going in orbits the entire time you're slingshotting around gargantua there you know this this idea like you say of looping around is is very prevalent throughout the entire movie yeah and 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 like you said you know uh this the concept is batted back and forth you know um as you know was it us was it the future us was it you know did we truly transcend are we in that time where we're kind of you know fighting for the transcendence and somehow we reached out and touched ourselves like it's just it, it really makes you think about um, what happens when, you know, you can manipulate that fourth dimension of time. So, yeah. I think the question is, I think the question for me is who are humans going to become, right? So I think we all can see this in our lives, in history, in, the, in, in movies and literature, but humans, when at their best, look like gods. But that like, we're different, right? We're, we're, we are different than other beings. At our best, we look like gods, right? When we are magnanimous or when we are benevolent leaders, we look like gods. We create, we build, we, we expand, right? We flourish. But when we're at our worst, we look like animals. And that's what man is, right? Man is his reversion to these animal instincts. He's just protecting himself and he's doing it via moral justification. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he does uh, he does a lot of he's really good at moral justification, you know, really using the the logic um, to just basically explain away whatever reason somebody else comes up with. And that's a dangerous thing as a leader. So, you know, as you I would just say, I I don't I I do appreciate the, the kind of more esoteric take on 
you know, this transhumanism piece. But I think also you can look at it as a microcosm of how people evolve as leaders. Um, and as you evolve upward as a leader, learning new skills, you know, don't forget to make sure that you're, you maintain your empathy. Man lacked total empathy completely. Like he did not have that. Um, and he operated in a closed loop. And that's that was his problem, right? Ultimately, in the end, is that he kept feeding himself good signals about himself, and that made him believe that he was a god. And so, and that he played, uh, you know, he he played judge and jury with everybody else and said, "You're wrong, and I'm right." And that's how he justified uh, doing what he did to everybody else, at least attempting to, right? And it all backfired. And then he had that moment. Uh, you know, Cooper, there is a moment, boom, the, the airlock explodes. That's when he realized that he was not a god, right? And that he fell from the sky at that point, literally. I mean, I'm sure his, you know, his crash or whatever, right? Um, and I think that's, uh, be careful. And I think that's there's a warning here, right? Um, there's also, you know, there's an aspiration, you know, that Nolan has in there, but there's also a warning that goes along with it is that you cannot you 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 can't uh you know feed yourself in a closed loop don't do that as a leader don't feed yourself in a closed loop there's so many people that sit in closed loop you and, and how does this play out because i want to get specific just for a second you you talk to the same people all the time you're always working in the same spot you're always uh doing the same things right um there's nothing wrong with having routine but a little bit of variation. And this is where curiosity ties in as well. Having curiosity can help you break the the stagnant uh, routine and the ability of, you know, yourself to have a little curiosity can break the closed loop and keep you from getting a God complex about the kind of leader that you are. You won't become a better leader. And I say this as sincerely as I can, you know, and as caring as I can, you won't become a better leader until you can break the closed loop and and truly uh, see yourself as you are. And when you can see yourself as you are, then you can actually give something to others to, you know, you have something truly uh, just rich to offer other people um, that you lead because it's not about you anymore. It was all about man. It was all about man. It was never about Cooper. It was never about Cooper. And he, yeah, that's that's what we have to avoid. And you know, the worst case scenario, as you pointed out there, that's that's some real nuggets of wisdom. But the worst case scenario is it becomes your character, and your character becomes flawed. And that's what happened to man's right. Your thoughts, your thoughts over time form your actions. Your actions that that happen over and over again become behaviors. Those behaviors reinforce actions, which becomes character. And when your character becomes flawed, that's when good, you know, you can flip good and bad in your head. You can flip self-serving and and uh, you know and being generous and, and serving others in your head and everything gets wound up wrong. And that's how you become like man. So we want to become good leaders like Cooper, like Murph. And that's our takeaways from Interstellar. Thanks for joining us today. Tune in next Sunday with us when we talk about the Mandalorian.